Hello there, and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent, and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined on the show by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show, we hear more from UK journalist Ed Ahrens on his book Made in Africa: The History of African Players in English Football. Ed looks at South African trailblazer Albert Johansson, one of the first high-profile black players of any nationality to play top-flight football in England. And we talk about another South African, Lucas Radebe, and his hugely successful time at Leeds United. Uh, plus, Stuart on Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's current lack of goals at Arsenal. They say that class is permanent and form is temporary. Aubameyang has class in abundance, but perhaps his form has dropped a little bit. That's coming later, and as the Confederation of African Football handed out a lot of fines this week, Abamyang was among those on the receiving end, getting fined ten thousand dollars for his social media posts when he and his Gabon teammates were not allowed to leave the airport on arriving in the Gambia for an Africa Cup of Nations qualifier. CAF said the posts undermined their honour and image. The Gambia Football Federation was fined a hundred thousand dollars for the incident, but they are set to. Appeal. Well, now to the second part of our interview with Ed Aarons.、Uh, Ed is a journalist with the Guardian newspaper in the UK, and author of a book published this year called "Made in Africa: The History of African Players in English Football." Well, Ed has some fascinating stories and insights. Last week, we heard about the first African in the English Premier League, that Zimbabwe's Peter Ndlovu.、Uh, that's in the era of the Premier League, which launched in 1992. And before we hear about、uh, South African star Lucas Radebe and his time at Leeds in the Premier League, Ed first went way back in time to the three Steen brothers. That's Brian, Mark, and Edwin. They moved from South Africa to England in the 1970s. All of them played for Luton Town, and a Brian Steen became the first African-born player to play for the England national team. That was in 1984. Well, Ed told Planet Sport Football Africa's Adrian Barnard about racist abuse that the brothers received while watching a game in the stands against Chelsea. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that, that, their story is one of my favourites in the book because they're the sons of a South African political activist who was forced out of South Africa、um, because of his involvement with the anti-apartheid movement. And so, yeah, the three boys grew up in London, and、uh, Edwin, one of the sons, some of them used to go to Chelsea to watch games and、uh, you know receive some awful abuse while they were at that game. So, you know, it's surprising it didn't really put them off. But I think all three of them and and the rest of his children. Were kind of filled with the spirit of their father, and you know, really wanted to, despite all these issues that they had to face, really wanted to prove themselves and uh, and and try to overcome these obstacles. And yeah, it's really amazing to see that three brothers from the same family managed to make it、uh, as professional footballers. And obviously, Brian、uh, went on to play for England, which was a historic moment as the first black African-born England international. Yeah, tell us something about that because that really was an amazing occasion for him, and it shows something about the character, doesn't it, of the the family and the upbringing that the three playing boys had from their parents.、Uh, that was、uh, 1984, I think, wasn't it, when Brian was playing in a, a friendly game for England against France in Paris. Again, quite a trailblazer. Tell us something about that. 
Absolutely, yeah. I mean, he was a, a real, uh, a very quick rise for him. He was he'd done pretty well in the, the under twenty ones team, which I think had got to the the semi finals of the the European Championships, and he'd been playing up front with Paul Walsh, um, who he knew well from uh, from Luton, and uh, they they were brought in by Bobby Robson to play against France in a friendly, and you know France had uh, Michel Platini in their team and went on to win the European Championships that summer. Um, and Brian, you know, just got the one chance and, uh, that was it. That was the only time he ever played for England. And I don't think he even played for the under 20. He wasn't even selected for the, for the final of the under 21s either. So that was it. But, you know, there was a, a few more times under David Pleat at Luton where I think he must have been very close to being, uh, called up by England. But obviously at the same time, they had quite a good, few good strikers like Gary Lineker who was, uh, coming to the fore at that stage. But yeah, a real shame that he didn't get more, more caps. We hear a lot today about the African players in the Premier League supporting their families and their villages back home and recognising their roots where they've come from and wanting to put something back. And Brian, Mark and Edwin did that. They founded the Stain Foundation with Carl and other of their brothers in honour of their parents. And tell us a bit about the foundation there and the work that they do. Yeah, well, it's a very noble cause that they've set up back in uh, back in Cape Town, which is where their, their father, Isaiah, was from. And they've been trying to, you know, help the local community by educating them and, and providing football lessons and coaching to them. And it's a really a great thing. They have a, they have an annual event in England, which I'm not sure if it, I don't think it happened this year, just obviously because of COVID. But, um, they're very, very active in that sphere, trying to keep it going and keep their father's name alive because he, he really is an absolute uh, hero of the South African apartheid struggle, helped to set up Sandrock, which was the, you know, the anti-apartheid Olympic movement. And he was really uh, very involved in that and some of the protests as well against the, uh, South African tours in the 1970s. He was, he was very much involved in all of that as well. So it was a great man. And, uh, I think if you ask some people like Chris Hewton as well and Paul Elliott, um, he was very inspirational in their careers as well. Was there a sense that uh, Isaiah perhaps didn't want his boys to go into football, but wanted them to be a little bit more actively involved in the the cause that uh, he was putting all of his life into? Um, I'm not sure if he wanted wanted them to get involved in that as much. Actually, I think he was quite wary of the impact that that could have on his children, and as was his wife, who was quite involved in it as well. And I think rather than not wanting them to get involved in football and be politicians, I think they wanted them to be educated. That was the bottom line. And he worried that, you know, going into football wouldn't provide that. But, you know, there was a sense of them having to prove him wrong a a little bit, which drove them on, I think, quite a lot. But also, you know, he was very protective about the the potential impact of uh, working, you know, a very dangerous job that was, you know, constantly under threat you know even though they were in london miles away from the apartheid regime they were kind of you know they were targets well this season we've seen leeds united return to the english premier league and one of their uh, heroes of yesteryear lucas radabay and remarkable that he was such a popular player at leeds united that today we find in leeds that the name lucas is still one of the most popular names for newborn boys um remarkable legacy that Absolutely, yeah. And I think you just saw there was a, a great mural which went up this week in Leeds, which um, initially just featured Calvin Phillips, you know, Leeds and England midfielder who's um, doing so well in the Premier League. And uh, it's just been added to his shoulders, um, pictures of Albert Johansson, who played for Leeds in the 1960s, and also Lucas Radebe, who was, you know, captain for Leeds in almost a decade and was such a, a legend there. So that just shows you he's still very much at the forefront of uh, Leeds history. And, 
you know, even when they were promoted, for instance, you know, at the end of last season, he was the first person that got called by all the media people to see his reaction because he's synonymous with Leeds now. He's almost Mr. Leeds. And that's amazing to see an African player who's had that impact on, on such a famous club. He didn't get to play as much as perhaps he could have. His career was blighted by injuries. And it's interesting that he talks about the number of long-haul flights between UK and South Africa actually having a bearing on that. That's not something we would necessarily think about when we think about players and their injuries, is it? No, and I think it's still very relevant today. I mean, obviously, at the moment, the players are playing ridiculous amount of fixtures. And I think especially if you're not just Africa, but maybe South American player going from the Premier League, the demands on the body with that recent international breaks they've had uh, cramming a lot of fixtures in. You're seeing all the injuries and players that have, have travelled being rested. And I think it's a serious consideration for some of these countries that, you know, a lot of players that come from there are considering retiring early from international football just so, you know, keep going longer in club football. And it would be a shame if that does happen. I think they need to try and work out a better way. A lot of, you know, a lot of African teams have started playing matches in Europe you know, friendly matches and stuff. And I think that may be the way forward. To take some of the burden off, obviously you have to play qualifiers, etc., at home and away. So that's important that that stays, I think. But yeah, some of the friendlies, maybe they can have a few more in Europe or, you know, near where the players are based. Yeah, that's a challenge, that, isn't it? Playing domestic football and then the international long-haul flights. And, of course, uh, players who represent Australia who've got even further to fly. Ed, you mentioned Albert Johansson at Leeds as a name that perhaps not a lot of people in Africa may be familiar with, and yet he was a real trailblazer as well. Uh, Give us a bit of an insight about Albert and his career at Leeds. Yeah, well, he uh, arrived in the early 1960s after Jerry Francis, who was the first uh, guy from from South Africa to come over just a few years before. And I think because he did pretty well when Leeds were still in the second division, it convinced Leeds to to give Albert a chance. He was brought over by the same scout who was a teacher called Barney Gaffney. And uh, Albert took a, a few years to, to settle in Leeds, but eventually made his way into the first team and was one of their stars of the team that got promoted under Don Revy and then got into the first team. And, and it was a real sensation, actually, the first couple of years in the first team and, and got to the FA Cup final in 1965 but had not one of his best games unfortunately and Leeds ended up losing 2-0 to Liverpool but then after that unfortunately his career started to unravel and he suffered quite badly and became a bit of an alcoholic and yeah a real a real sad story after that because he you know drifted around and suffered terrible racism from the police and uh, eventually died in a flat and wasn't discovered for his body wasn't discovered for an estimated around five days. So it was a very sad end to somebody who was a real pioneer for, for English football. Well, a sad story indeed. That's Ed Ahrens speaking to Planet Sport Football Africa's Adrian Barnard about Albert Johansson, a South African who was one of the first black players of any nationality to play top-flight football in England. Ed's book is called Made in Africa, The History of African Players in English Football, and more from Ed on the show next week. Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. And still to come, Stuart on the players of Paris Saint-Germain and Istanbul Basak Sahir walking off during their Champions League game after a racist comment. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Planet Sport FA. You can download our app and listen to the show anytime and access past programs in our archive. To download, go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. Well, to social media now, and last week on the show we asked, is this the time for black African coaches to shine? As South African Pizzo Mosimani won the CAF Champions League with Egyptian side Al-Athli, he became only the third coach to win the title with two different teams, and his achievement has done something to raise the profile of black African coaches. Now, earlier this year, Mosimani said that coaches from Europe should be screened before getting jobs with clubs in South Africa. And a CAF has tightened the rules for foreign coaches in continental competitions as they must have a UEFA Pro license or take the CAF A license. So last week we asked, uh, is this the time for black African coaches to shine on the continent? Can they match the exploits of European coaches in Africa? And what support do they need? With your comments, here's Planet Sport Football Africa's Ephraim Tagu. Uh, thanks, Steve. And we start today with uh, Saidu Tamba in the Gambia, who says, I believe that African coaches uh, need the opportunity to start out younger, uh, just as in Europe, uh, says uh, Saidu. Here in the Gambia, we have only one CAF A licensed coach. If coaches can have the A license as early as 30 years old, we will see a lot more innovation. At the age of 30, you have more energy and charisma to develop the right attributes to be a coach. Most of the top coaches in Europe Europe are innovators, uh, Guardiola, Klopp and uh, Julian Nagelsmann at uh, RB Leipzig all started below the age of 35. So if Africa can uh, provide the capacity to develop coaches when uh, they are younger, we will see more energy in our coaching, which is a key role. Well, an interesting perspective here from Saidu to start us off today. Moses in Malawi believes there's another vital factor as well. To me, we should commercialize the game properly, says Moses. Tighten rules, then life will be equal. Black is just a skin color, but talent is the same. Look at who is shining in Europe. It's the African players. And who are the ones who teach football in Africa? It's our African coaches, says Moses. Amadou Baji in the Gambia says, From my perspective, I have confidence and belief in African coaches. Africa has good high-profile coaches, but they need support both from CAF and from their countries of origin. Pizzo Mosemani did a splendid work winning a prestigious title with one of the most successful football clubs in African football, but other African coaches have to rise and shine by obtaining the CAF A license to follow Pizzo's success. Esunga in Cameroon believes that uh, now is the time for Africa to help its coaches to fulfill uh, their potential. I have always said that uh, this continent of ours is endowed with talent, says Esunga. If our African footballers have made big names in Europe and elsewhere for this long and consistently earning the great respect they are currently enjoying, then it's high time we consider the brilliance of our African coaches too. The evolution process is ongoing and uh, what these African coaches need is more exposure and a better financial package. This will enable them to enjoy the job and keep them highly motivated to produce results.
Mustafa Jallo in the Gambia agrees that African coaches should be given more opportunities. Black coaches are as good as their white counterparts, says Mustafa. But the problem is that they are not given the opportunity to coach. There is too much discrimination and to be white and from Europe does not necessarily make you a good coach. Alaji T. Cham is also in the Gambia. Well, I think it's high time for black African coaches to shine, says Alaji, because most of the coaches that are doing well are from overseas. I'm happy that uh, some of them, like uh, Mosimane and others, are doing very good with different teams. Uh, the black African coaches should also be given the chance to showcase their capabilities. I think that will also help them to develop and improve. And we also welcome your voice notes on Planet Sport Football Africa. And here's Fabrice in Cameroon. Our problem in Africa is that the standard of the game in Europe they are far more developed than us. We have a problem of structure. But if we have a structure, the game will start uh, developing from the grassroots up to the level where we have good quality players. And from there, our black coaches will excel because by winning something here back at home, we will boost their morale in the global game. So Fabrice is saying there that Africa first needs to develop its structures and grassroots football to improve the quality of the game in Africa and that in turn will help develop more high quality coaches across the continent. Francisco Dodoma in Malawi believes that African coaches still have some way to go to be able to compete with the coaches in Europe. While I believe it's time for our coaches to shine on the continent, says Francisco, I also believe that most of our African coaches cannot compete with most European coaches due to several factors, including but not limited to exposure and expertise. There are other obstacles too. Abduli Chubu in the Gambia thinks there could be a good source of potential coaches within the game already in other areas. Let the African Football Federations consider their ex-professional players and appoint them as head coaches of their national teams, says Abduli. Well, uh, yes, uh, they'd certainly bring a lot of experience as uh, players into the role. Uh, but of course, being a great player does not mean necessarily that you'll become a great coach. As a former France and Arsenal midfielder, Patrick Vieira discovered when he was sacked after two and a half years by Nice this week. And finally, Gemo, a Cameroonian living in the United States, says, Congratulations to Pizzo Mosimane for winning the CAF Champions League. I don't know if this is the right time, but I can't wait for a time when everyone can shine, no matter where you come from, no matter your race or ethnicity, your religion or your gender, because at the end of the day, we are all humans, says Gemo. And Steve, I think we should all agree with those sentiments. Well, yes, uh, absolutely. Thanks, Ephraim. That's Ephraim Tagu. And finally on this, let's hear from Pizzo Mossimani himself. He says he hopes that winning the Champions League with Al-Athli will open the way for other black coaches, but also sees it in a similar way to Germo. Yeah, I'm humbled if if there is a, a the trigger or there is, if I might be part of, I might be a catalyst or a change or, or news-making to our local coaches. And I don't want to talk about Black coach, I'm not playing the race card to you, but I'm just saying, I just feel I'm an international coach. Eh? I think I'm an African coach. 
I don't look at it like there's white coach or black coach. I look at it as a, as a as an African coach, you know, I'm international coach. I've been international coach ever since I've been at Bafana. So I, I'm humbled of what you're saying that the impact, but um, yeah, thanks God, we, 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 it's about time. And I've always spoken about it, that uh, we can do something and yeah, we can show what South Africa is about. That's Pizzo Mossimani. He was speaking to the South African Journalists Association on Zoom. Well, this week on social media, we have a question coming from listener John Muano, who's in Zambia. And John asks, uh, do players need helmets to prevent head injuries? Uh, The recent clash of heads between Arsenal's David Luiz and Wolves' Raul Jimenez has raised a new debate about concussion, says John. And he asks, do football players now need helmets when playing the game to prevent concussion? How are health experts helping on this one? And what's the way forward regarding head injuries and heading the ball? You can go to our Facebook page and post a comment there. That's Planet Sport Football Africa. Or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. Now to our European football expert Stuart Weir in the UK and Arsenal's 2-0 defeat at Tottenham last Sunday saw them slump to 15th in the table with their sixth defeat in the league this season. Now a couple of weeks ago on the show we talked about their lack of goals. Now they've only scored 10 times in 11 games. Last season, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang hit 22 goals in 35 Premier League starts. This season, he scored just two in 11. Uh, so, Stuart, is this down to a lack of confidence, uh, the service he gets from the team, or a bit of both? Well, it's a very obvious thing to say that it's much easier for a striker to score goals in a successful and confident team. Arsenal started the season with two wins over Fulham and West Ham which in a meaningless sort of way put them top of the league after two games. The problem, as you say, has been the struggle to score goals. Ten goals in 11 games is bad enough, but when you realise they scored five of those goals in the first two games of the season, that leaves them with five goals in their last nine league games. Arsenal were eighth last season, And with Mikel Arteta being given the opportunity in the transfer window to tweak his squad, there were high hopes that Arsenal could return to being a top four team, like the glory days of Arsene Wenger. But it's all been a bit of a struggle. And the last six weeks have been a disaster, with Arsenal plummeting down the league table from 5th at the end of October to 14th. And Alexander Lacazette, Arsenal's other main striker, has got three goals this season, but the problem is all of those came in September. Compare that with Tottenham, who have Son Heung-min, who scored 10 goals, and Harry Kane, who's got eight this season. The difference between the current strike power of the two North London teams was well illustrated last weekend, with Son and Kane scoring for Tottenham, and Arsenal hardly looking like scoring. Incidentally, This season, Kane and Son have created 11 chances for each other which have resulted in goals, and that is more than the total number of goals by Arsenal. They say that class is permanent and form is temporary. Aubameyang has class in abundance, but perhaps his form has dropped a little bit. But of course he's playing under his fourth Arsenal manager in three years, and there's not much happening behind him to create chances. 
So you can understand if his confidence is lower than usual. At Dortmund in Germany, he scored a goal every 1.5 games. At Arsenal, his average is 1.7 games for each goal. But this season, it's one every five games. But I'm sure that will improve as the season moves on. Well, let's hope so. And uh, Wilfred Zaha returned to the Crystal Palace team after missing two games following a positive test for COVID-19. And Zaha scored twice in the Eagles' 5-1 win at West Brom. Now, Palace had lost both of their previous games without the Ivorian in their side. And there seems to be a trend here, as Palace have only won twice in 17 league games without Zaha in the past. Uh, So, Stuart, just how important is he for Palace? The statistics are intriguing, indeed, that Palace have only won two of the last 17 games that Zaha didn't play in. But it's not just his goals, because last season he only scored four in 37 games. But then last season, the Ghanaian Jordan Ayew scored nine, often exploiting space left by Zaha's unselfish running. Zaha is also the most fouled player in the Premier League, and the free kicks that he wins can also lead to goals for others. This season, Zaha has scored seven in nine Premier League games, so there's no doubting his value this season. Now, Palace's 5-1 win over West Brom last weekend was the first time the club has ever scored five goals in an away game in the Premier League. And the only other time they've managed an away win by four goals was in 1973, ironically also at West Brom. But to put last week's result in context, West Brom have won only one game all season and the score was one all when West Brom's Pereira was sent off. The win, though, does leave Palace in 11th position in the league in a season that, frankly, they may have been a few people's favourites for relegation. Manchester United's strange season continues. A 3-1 away win at West Ham last Saturday was their fifth away win this season and they've scored three goals or more in all of them. And remarkably, Manchester United have come from behind in all five games. But on, on the other hand, Their five home games have seen them lose three and draw one. And in midweek, they were eliminated from the Champions League, losing 3-2 to Leipzig when they just needed a draw to qualify. It was the same old story. 2-0 down after 12 minutes. 3-0 down early in the second half before they started to play when they got the two late goals. Early elimination from the Champions League adds the pressure on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as he prepares his team to face Manchester City on Saturday. United find themselves in the unusual position in recent years of being higher in the league table than City. And last season, don't forget United won home and away against their City rivals in the league. But the fixture has suddenly taken on extra significance for the team in red. Yeah, really looking forward to that to Manchester derby. And uh, Stuart, what else have you got for us? Well, there was a strange incident during the West Ham Manchester United game when the United goalkeeper, Dean Henderson, kicked the ball up the right touchline with a bit of side spin. The ball bounced in play and Manchester United scored. But the West Ham manager, David Moyes, who had been on the touchline, was screaming that the ball had gone out of play and then swung back in. The assistant referee hadn't seen it because he was watching for offside. VAR was asked to adjudicate, but didn't have a camera on the touchline, and the goal was allowed. Whether the ball goes out of play is one of the things that VAR is supposed to check. 
But that's a bit of a nonsense if they don't have a camera in the right position to see it. So there's a new one for us, Steve. Um, there was a rather disturbing and unprecedented incident in the Champions League game this week between Paris Saint-Germain and Besiktas of Istanbul when the referee showed a red card to the Turkish team assistant coach Pierre Webo. Now, you may remember Webo as a player for Cameroon, gaining over 50 caps and scoring three goals in Abidjan in 2005 as Cameroon beat Cote d'Ivoire 3-2 and looked to have secured qualification for the 2006 World Cup. I certainly remember it because I was in the stadium. Now, going back to the midweek game, the Romanian referee was unsure which person on the bench had made a remark which he thought was worthy of a red card. And he asked the fourth official, who replied, Alanegru, which is the Romanian for the black guy. Webo then challenged the official, asking, why did you say Negro? Why did you say Negro? Diambaba was a substitute for the Turkish team, and he also got involved and was caught on TV pictures, angrily arguing with the official in English, saying, listen to me, you would never say this white guy, so why do you mention a black guy? Players on both sides were outraged, and led by Mbappe of PSG and Dembaba for the Turkey side, they expressed disbelief and outrage and then walked off the field. They refused to continue the game unless the official was replaced. The game was replayed the following night with new officials with PSG winning easily. Now, there's been a lot of support for the players, how they were willing to take this action and how the PSG players supported the Turkish side, even though they hadn't been involved. It seemed unlikely that the official in question will be seen on the European stage again. Well, it's a very unfortunate incident. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, that's it for the show for this week. So from me, Steve Vickers and Ephraim Tagu in Harare, from Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.